Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Good evening, good morning, whatever the case may be, wherever you are, across these many different time zones, on this planet, and perhaps even beyond this planet, you are listening to Mysterious Matters, and I am the curator of mysteries. My name is Bob Bain. Now, today on Mysterious Matters, we're going to find out why when scientists take an extremely close look at the realm of reality, the less real it appears to be. And we cannot take this topic seriously without having a, one of the greatest minds in the scientific field of theoretical physics. And, well, that's exactly what we have joining us this evening. Our guest today is going to be theoretical physicist and string theorist, Professor Brian Green. Brian Green is renowned for his groundbreaking discoveries in superstring theory. He is a professor of physics and mathematics and director of Columbia University's Center for Theoretical Physics. He is also the author of The Elegant Universe, The Fabric of the Cosmos, The Hidden Reality, and his latest book, which I happen to have in my hand at this moment, Until the End of Time. And Until the End of Time focuses on mind, matter, and our search for meaning in an ever-evolving universe. If after listening to this program you find that you are interested in reading Professor Green's latest book, you can go to mysteriousmatters.com slash until. And without any further ado, Professor Green, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. Professor, physics, it largely goes unseen in, in the background while we go about our daily lives. The role of physics is something of a mystery to a lot of individuals. And while I have read a lot of your work, I've read a lot of the work of other theoretical physicists. Would you mind just giving us a small rundown of what physics is and how the role of physics is important? to us and the world around us. Sure, absolutely. You know, physics is the science that deals with the inner workings of basically all physical systems, from stars to planets to people to inanimate objects on Earth and so on. And so if you really want to understand the fundamental underpinnings of everything that you experience, you need to understand the ingredients that make up the things in the world around you, 
And you also need to understand the mathematical laws that dictate how those ingredients come together, interact, and determine the behavior of the entities that you encounter in the world around you. So that's what we as physicists do. We're basically just trying to lay bare the inner workings of reality, which is an enormous task, but one that over the past few hundred years, science has made incredible strides toward realizing the goal. When did you begin having an interest in physics? I know with another guest that we've had on this program, which I believe you're familiar with, Michio Kaku, he began at a very young age. Did you also begin at a young age? Yeah, I think that's a pretty common story, especially among theoretical physicists, and and Michio is a theorist, as am I. And many of us, I don't know Michio's story particularly well, but I began with an intense interest in mathematics. So at a very young age, my father taught me the very basics of arithmetic, you know, multiplication, addition, and so on. And I kind of got captivated by the fact that with this small bit of knowledge, one could begin to do things like multiply huge numbers against other huge numbers, do things that no one had ever done before. So my father would set me these huge multiplication problems, and I'd spend the weekend with big pieces of construction paper all taped together to carry out these calculations that were, of course, no interest to anybody. But for me, they were a fascinating exercise in how you can use a little bit of knowledge to do something creative. And that's really, for me, where it began. Now, we are about the same age, close to the same age. While you were doing that, I was probably creating these little radio kits. I don't know if you remember, back in the old days. Sure. We had those kits you would put together to, uh, whether they be radio scanners, anything else. It really was an interesting time that we lived versus maybe in today's age. I I asked this before of someone else. Do you think that today's generation are um, being dumbed down to a degree compared to our previous generation? Well, I think it's, uh, I think almost every generation looks at the next one and wonders about whether they are experiencing and learning and engaging with the world as deeply as perhaps they or we did in an earlier era. I think there's a tendency to do that. However, having said that, you know, I've got two kids. I've got a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I think as with many kids, the amount of time that they spend staring into their phone or tapping away at their iPad leads me to a degree of worry that rather than filling their brains with mathematics or physics or science or even just plain old reading, you know, the great literature of of the past and the present, it feels to me that a tremendous amount of time is wasted clicking on YouTube videos and fiddling around with various distractions on the uh, the Internet and social media. Mm-hmm. And look, again, as I'm saying, I think every era probably has their gripe of that sort, but this one feels kind of real to me. Yes. It's not just the children or the teenagers of this current generation. It is also adults of our generation that I've noticed this with. My wife and yeah. I, we were driving in downtown Nashville. I'm from Tennessee, so we were driving downtown Nashville. And you would see people not even paying attention. Their eyes 
where it was like they were just hypnotized by their devices. Everywhere they're going to, they're missing out on the world. I agree. It's kind of scary. Um, And the other scary side of it, which is only anecdotal, but my wife tells me, and I trust that she's probably checked into it, that many of the leaders who are responsible for the development of these electronic gadgets did not and have not allowed their children to spend the kind of time that the average person spends on these devices. Mm. They would restrict access to the very devices that they helped create, presumably because they were aware of the powerful addictive quality of these devices and the way in which it can prevent one from achieving and doing the things that one might otherwise do. I mean, I'm a firm believer that you need to allow the brain to just have free moments where it's not occupied with clicking this button or doing this other thing. Just allow the brain the freedom to wander creatively. And I find with my kids, and sometimes with me too, I have to admit, then rather than allowing my brain to freely explore, when I have a free moment, I tend to pull out the phone and look at the email and see what's going on and click on CNN or the New York Times. And that tendency to fill up those free moments with digital activities, I think, is something that may detract from the otherwise creative juices that the brain would be making use of. Have you seen any sign that today's technology is taking people away from the world of science? As in, maybe there's a decrease and the number of people going into the different fields of science because, well, they're simply so distracted by technology, they just don't see themselves doing anything else. It's hard to answer that question. I don't have any real data, so it would all just be kind of, uh, again, very much an anecdotal impression. Yes. But the thing that I can say, which I, I think is at least hopeful, you know, many of the science students that I teach, say, at Columbia, they really are quite strong, and they are, in my estimation, as good as an earlier generation. I don't really see a decay in productivity or brain power or things of that sort. So I think those who would have gone on into science are pretty much still going into science, And from that perspective, then, it's not as though I can talk about some general degradation of the next generation that's hopefully going to pick up where this generation leaves off. But, you know, as overall trend in the wider public, I think what we're describing in terms of the wasted energy in the digital domain is something that is deeply concerning. Yes. Now, your book, your latest book, actually, is Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning and an Evolving Universe. How is this particular book different from some of your others? Well, it's, it's, it's radically different. You know, all of my other books were focused on bringing a certain category of scientific advancement to the general public. So my first book, The Elegant Universe, focused on string theory and unified theories. My second book, Fabric of the Cosmos, tried to give insights into the nature of the space-time fabric from current cutting-edge research. And my third book, Hidden Reality, was focused on the possibility of multiple universes. Again, another strange idea that comes out of our analyses of cutting-edge science. This book 
is trying to take the broadest perspective and tell the entire story of the universe from the beginning of time to the closest that science can take us to the very end. And moreover, it has a humanist sensibility that infuses the narrative, because I, at one and the same time that I give the narrative of the entire cosmos, I also ask the question, where does life come from? Where does mind come from? Where does self-reflection come from? And what happens when living beings that can think about themselves stand up, look around, and wonder how they got here, ask themselves how best to spend the little time that they have, and then turn toward the future and determine what lies in store. So it's a scientific story for sure, but it's also a very humanist story that speaks to what it means to be a human being within a universe that is on the largest of scales and the largest of time scales headed for decay. We're heading for decay, as in we're going to eventually cease to exist? Yes, so you can make a very strong argument that the window on the cosmological timeline, the part of the cosmic narrative that has conditions that are compatible with life and compatible with conscious beings, is pretty small. I mean, for much of the cosmic past, we suspect there was no life in the universe. Even if there's life elsewhere in the universe, it took a while before that life could emerge because the conditions were not hospitable for the first few billion years of the unfolding of the universe. And it's quite likely that sometime in the far future, I am talking about very long time scales, but in the very far future, the conditions in the universe will once again not be hospitable for life. And so life will most likely cease to exist at some point in the far future. Mm -hmm. It's not too far-fetched. We once had dinosaurs, and uh, there were other humanoid beings here that no longer exist. Yep. In your maybe personal opinion or theoretical opinion, what comes next after our time is gone? Our next evolutionary well, it's a step. Hard question to yeah, it's a very hard question to answer. You know, it could well be that the species on planet Earth will continue to evolve, and if somehow we're able to survive, you know avoiding some pandemic that wipes us all out, avoiding some nuclear holocaust that wipes us all out. Let's imagine that all of those catastrophes, somehow we avoid them. It could be that our form of life may continue to evolve into another form. Perhaps a billion years from now, we will be quite different from what we are today. I think many people suspect, though, that the most radical change going forward will come from intelligent intervention, namely these things that we invent and our abilities to meld, say, digital technology with flesh and blood technology, or even in the digital domain to create artificial forms of intelligence that made themselves have conscious self-awareness. This is not all that far-fetched. It's conceivable, therefore, that in the far future, the form of conscious life that we know and love, namely our carbon-based life forms walking around on planet Earth, may be supplanted by digital versions that nevertheless are able to carry out 
all of the same functions and then some that we are able to carry out today. Speaking of digital versions, there are some theories out there that state or that claim that we are digital versions of whatever we are, that we are living in a holographic illusion. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange-sounding idea, but actually one that's familiar to anybody, for instance, who's gone to see any of the Matrix films, right? Those mm-hmm. are films in which there are beings that are actually hooked up to simulators that make them think as though they are living in a reality that doesn't actually exist. You can just take that one step further, forget about the flesh and blood beings at all, and imagine that there's a 15-year-old kid in a futuristic garage who's well-equipped with a fantastically powerful supercomputer that he or she has programmed to create within its digital architecture simulated worlds inhabited by simulated beings, and those beings are so well-developed and designed that they think that they are alive, they think that they are existing in an actual world, but instead what's really going on is they're just electronic circuits flooded with bits and bytes that make it seem as though there's a real reality when, in fact, it's all taking place within a computer. And then you can say, well, how do we know that we, at this very moment, are not in one of those computers? And, indeed, it's not possible to really give a foolproof argument that we're not. In fact, there's one philosopher from Oxford, a guy named Nick Bostrom, who makes a very interesting argument, which basically says, hey, it's very difficult to create a real universe it might be quite simple to create digital universes, and therefore, if that's the case, there may be many more digital universes than there are real ones. And if that's the case, and you were to ask yourself, are you in a real universe or are you in a digital universe, the odds would seem to suggest that you're in a digital one because there's so many more of them than there are real ones. And that leads you to at least take seriously the possibility that right now, we might be in one of those simulations. And I was watching one of your, uh, I don't know if it was a TED Talk or what, but if I'm not mistaken, you said there's a very high probability that we are, in fact, inside a simulation right now. A high probability. Yes. Now, you have to take that with a grain of salt because it's under certain assumptions. Okay. And those assumptions are, for instance, we need to assume that in the far future, or maybe even right now, Technology will develop to a point where you can simulate worlds with such fantastic accuracy that inhabitants in those digital worlds really think that those worlds are real. We don't know that you can do that. Certainly, the way technology is progressing, it suggests that you might be able to do that. But we don't have any real argument establishing that there is the possibility for a computer to actually reach that level of quality, that it can come so close to a real world that an inhabitant will think that it's real. Um, But, you know, if you admit that as a possibility, then the probabilities that you're referring to come from the argument that I mentioned a moment ago. Namely, if there are a huge number of simulated worlds and only one real one, then the odds are you're in a simulated world just because there's so many more of them compared to the real one. As I said, I've been following your work and Mitchell Kaku's work for years. Um, I, I subscribe to several magazines, New Scientist, Scientific American, and there was 
one individual, which I'm sure you know about, I'm not going to mention his name, but he wrote an article, which I believe was in News, nope, it was in Scientific American, who called your work essentially pseudoscience, that it is not based on experimental whatever in labs, which science is supposed to be. Could you reproduce any of your theories? I mean, it's all theories, really, right? Could you reproduce any of this scientifically? Yes, so it's important to know the context in which some people make remarks of that sort. It's generally coming from the fact that my field of research, which is a field called string theory or superstring theory, which attempts to realize the dream that Albert Einstein himself articulated half a century or more ago about trying to unify our understanding of the laws of physics to find a single mathematical equation, if you will, that would describe gravity and electromagnetism and the nuclear forces and so forth. And string theory, at least on paper, is the first mathematical structure that is capable of achieving that unification. The challenge, and it's not one that I ever hide, it's one that I'm always talking about and fully emphasizing whenever I talk about string theory, is that although the mathematics works on paper, we have yet to be able to link our mathematics with observable features of the world, and therefore this mathematical structure called string theory has not been tested experimentally. This is something that every honest string theorist like myself is fully aware of, is happy to discuss, and brings forward in every conversation we have about string theory in the public domain. So when someone then comes along and says that what we string theorists are doing is pseudoscience, it's kind of weird to hear that, because the nature of being at the cutting edge of science is that the work that you're doing has often not yet been experimentally tested. That's what it means to be at the frontier. Mm-hmm. It means that you have to work hard, and you have to do all that you can to find ways of testing these theories, but that can take years, it can take decades, and indeed we are in the midst of that kind of era right now, where these ideas are being developed mathematically, and we hope one day we'll be able to test them, but we haven't been able to do so yet. That doesn't mean we're doing pseudoscience, it means we're doing cutting-edge science that hopefully one day will be tested, and if one they were able to conclude that we can't ever test these ideas, at that point we would abandon them. Because if you can't test the ideas that you're working on, then you're not doing science. But you can't make that judgment until you've worked hard and gone the distance to try to find ways to test the theories that you're working on. Does it aggravate you when you hear from peers making that claim against you and others? It doesn't really. It just sort of makes me shrug or laugh. It kind of depends where it's coming from. But oftentimes, if you analyze the motivation for somebody to make a remark of that sort, you realize, case by case, that the remark is generally not coming from a dispassionate analysis of the scientific situation. There are all sorts of other human qualities that come into remarks of that sort that span the gamut from jealousies to people who feel that they themselves have not gotten their due, people who feel that their work isn't getting enough attention, people who feel that their work is not getting enough government support, and things of that sort. I fully understand 
those human motivations that can lead somebody to say things that are really not justified by any scientific analysis, but from a human level are completely understandable. So I pretty much just have compassion when, when I hear people make statements of that sort because they can't really bother me because they're just obviously not true. Yeah, and you just have to shrug it off. I do, I do it on yeah. occasion for this show. Um, when it comes to the possibility, let's go back to the possibility of being living in a digital holographic illusion for a minute. Have you ever heard of the Mandela Effect? It does ring a bell. You have to remind me what that is, though. Well, the Mandela Effect. Let's just give an example. My wife and I, we were watching whatever news channel it was years ago. And they came on, it was a news report that Andy Rooney had died. Mm. And, but we, as the days and weeks and years progressed, we kept seeing him on the news program. I guess it was 60 minutes, whatever it was. And we looked at each other, didn't he die? And then years later, they announced he died again. It was as though somehow the information chain from one point of time or another i guess you could say they merged essentially that is what the mandela effect is it is a merging of time somehow because at some point people remembered uh, nelson mandela dying in prison so it's possible if you believe in different dimensions where we can where we have a different life that they can also merge if we are all a digital illusion so there's a lot of weird stuff that people talk about that may be in their minds relevant to the world but my own barometer my own yardstick my own means for adjudicating those things that are relevant to the world and those that are not is the very heart and soul of the scientific method, which is we develop our mathematical ideas, we analyze the equations. From the equations, we extract qualities of the world, and in the best of situations, we go out and test those predictions, and those mathematical equations that are borne out by the predictions are the ones that we take seriously. There's some at the cutting edge, as I mentioned before, that we reserve judgment on because we're not able to test them yet. But the ones from the past that have come through with flying colors are things like general relativity and quantum mechanics and Yang-Mills theories and things of that sort. And these theories themselves do have some astonishingly strange qualities, but they're qualities that we can confirm again and again and again through experiments that match the predictions decimal point by decimal point down to nine places after the decimal point and some of the most refined calculations that we make. So unless you can confirm a weird idea to that level of precision, it just has no interest for me whatsoever. I completely understand. I wanted to throw that out there because that was something that, like I said, my wife and I have experienced. We've heard about this before, but we've never experienced it except for that one time. So I wanted to see what your theory might have been, but that's perfectly fine. It's like you said, yeah. it's on the cutting edge of ideas. It's not even science at this point. But one day, maybe we can explain what's happening if it's not just in our own minds. Yeah, my, my guess is that it is within 
the particular minds that have experienced whatever weirdness you're referring to, and the explanation would be something that would fit more in the realm of psychology as opposed to some fundamental quality. Of the yes. World. I want to actually ask you about antimatter, because I, I've read about this before, and we've seen science fiction shows as well. Is it true that if antimatter and matter collide, that they wipe each other out? Yes, that is actually true. Uh, antimatter is not actually all that mysterious. It's uh, a version of matter in which the particles have basically the same mass, but the opposite charge, let's say electric charge, opposite electric charge. So the electron is a particle that has a particular mass, and it has what we call a negative electric charge. Its antimatter partner is called a positron, and a positron is just like an electron. It has the same mass, but it has a positive electric charge, so that when a positron and an electron come together, the positive and negative can cancel each other out, and the particles can annihilate and yield, in a sense, pure energy that can then rush outward from the point of interaction. Mm. So I'm thinking, I was just asking my wife this, is it possible that black holes are made up of antimatter? Do we know anything about you that? You could, absolutely. You absolutely could have a, an antimatter star that would collapse in on itself after it uses up its nuclear fuel and it can't support its own weight, and it collapses all the way down to a black hole. And indeed, that black hole would be composed, therefore, of antimatter as opposed to matter. So absolutely. Hmm. What would happen if, if a scientist were to make antimatter here on the Earth and somehow it got loose, like the coronavirus? Would it wipe out matter? No, so, so in, in, in fact, it's not hypothetical. We make antimatter here on Earth all the time. So in particle accelerators around the world, the collisions between particles that are traveling near the speed of light can produce all sorts of particles of antimatter. They don't, in any sense, spread like a virus. They don't replicate. They don't mutate. They simply are particles of matter with opposite charges, and indeed, if they encounter their partner, they can annihilate their partner, but there aren't enough of them to, say, have any impact on the structure of planet Earth, for instance. So it's not as though antimatter is to be feared. It's rather something to be studied and to be used to gain a deeper understanding of the fundamental laws of physics, and, and that's indeed what we do. And until the end of time, you had spoken about uh, the entropy of consciousness as though it were a steam engine or something, that the consciousness would yes, eventually yes. wipe itself out, would burn up. That's right. And, uh, and the point that I was making there is based on insights that go all the way back to the 1800s, when some very insightful scientists were able to establish that if you have some object, the steam engine was the canonical one that they were studying at the time, that is undergoing a cyclical process. For instance, it's turning a wheel, or it's making a piston go up and down and up and down, that necessarily that entity would have to emit a certain amount of heat into the environment. There's no way that it could function without dumping waste heat into the surrounding world in which it was operating. 
And the reason why that's interesting is because human beings are also objects that undergo cyclical behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. We eat food in the environment, we breathe, we exhale, we emit waste, we undertake activities, and so forth. So day upon day upon day, we are continuing that cycle of burning fuel, doing things in the world around us, and emitting waste heat in the process. The same also applies to the human brain and the thoughts that it undertakes. So a brain that's thinking also has to emit heat. And, you know, you can sort of see that. The military's infrared goggles, you can see human beings at night because they're always emitting a certain amount of heat, infrared radiation. The reason why that matters to the far future of the prospect for thought is that in the very far future, you can make an argument, which I give in the book, that the universe will not be able to absorb the heat generated by the process of thought. Why does that matter? Well, if the universe can't absorb that heat, then whatever it is that's doing the thinking will itself heat up since it can't expel the waste heat that its thought process is generating. At some point, that means that the thinking entity will burn up in the heat generated by its own thoughts hmm. and will therefore stop thinking. It will expire. So it's an argument that shows that even the process of thought is something that will not persist indefinitely in our universe because the universe will not support the ability of that thinking object to emit the waste heat that the process of thought will generate. Physics has a way to explain everything, well, nearly everything, I guess. Um, one of the mysteries of life is where consciousness originated from. Do you have a theory, or does science, physics, etc., have a theory about where no, consciousness originated no, I would say that nobody, neither physicists nor neuroscientists nor psychologists nor anybody who's really philosophers, nobody who's really thought deeply about consciousness can give us a real full story of what it is or where it came from. I mean, the deep mystery is, if you believe, as I do and many scientists do as well, that conscious thought emerges from the motion of particles inside our brains then you're faced with an interesting conundrum, which is electrons don't seem to have consciousness, nor do quarks, nor do protons, nor do any of the fundamental particles of matter. So how could it be that if you take large collections of those particles and have them move in the right way, they can somehow generate the inner sensations that you and I experience every moment of our waking lives? That's a deep puzzle that nobody as yet has resolved. My own guess, and it's only a guess, is that in the future, I don't know if it's going to be a hundred years or a thousand years or longer, when we understand the workings of the brain with greater fidelity, this mystery of consciousness, I suspect, will evaporate. It will go away. We'll simply recognize that when matter moves in the right way and when it's configured in the right pattern, the internal sensation of conscious awareness is a natural byproduct. It's a natural emergent phenomenon. That, I think, will be the answer. But to answer the question that you asked, no. Nobody can really give a foolproof answer to what consciousness is or where it comes from. When it comes to the thought process, the human consciousness, there's work, which I'm not sure if you're aware of or not, but there is work to digitize consciousness, as in uh, a person that might be 
on the verge of dying. They can digitize yeah. all of their memories. They can't digitize everything, but all of their memories. And somehow they hope to continue existing in the future. What do you know about this, if anything? Well, I've heard about some of the work. I mean, the, the detailed research that I'm more familiar with is things like the Blue Brain Project and and various attempts to take, say, sections of a, a rat brain and to map the connections, the neural connections, into a digital version and to show that the kinds of processes that happen within the biological brain can be mimicked by digital processes that happen in this simulated version of, say, the rat's cortical neural column, things of that sort. But the idea that today we can actually download memories and thoughts of a human being and store them in a digital environment is utterly not true. It's totally wishful thinking. And I understand the desire. I think everybody would understand the desire. How wonderful would it be if... Uh, if grandma's getting old and, and isn't going to be around much longer, that you could preserve grandma in a digital realm, and in that way she would always be with you. I would love to have done that with my own father before he passed away. Oh, yeah. But the fact of the matter is we don't know how to do it. We're nowhere near being able to do it. That may change in the future, whether it's in the near future or far future, I can't really say, but as of today, it's not something we can do. I recently heard something from you about time travel, that you believe we could possibly travel into the future, but you do not believe we could ever travel to the past. Do, do yeah, you believe that the summary. future, we could travel to the future because it has not happened yet? No. Uh, and, and by the way, one thing I would emphasize there, it's not that I believe that we can travel to the future. I know that we can travel to the future because it's embedded within Einstein's equations of special and the general theory of relativity. And those equations, as I was describing before, have been thoroughly tested in a great number of experiments, so we have complete confidence that those equations are describing how the world actually works. Einstein actually laid out a blueprint for how you travel to the future. You can go off to space near the speed of light, turn around and come back. When you step out of your ship, it will be the future. You could go onto a spaceship and hang out near the edge of a black hole. And when you return from hanging out near the edge of a black hole, again, when you step out of your ship, it will be the future. There is no scientist alive who understands the theories of relativity who would dispute what I just said. This is bread and butter basic physics that emerged uh, nearly over 100 years ago. The question of whether we can travel to the past, however, is a much more subtle and difficult one. People have made proposals for how you might do that, but I think most of us suspect that when we understand the laws of physics better, the possibility of traveling to the past will be ruled out. I do not know that for a fact today. Maybe something weird will happen, and we'll learn that you can travel to the past as well as to the future. But I suspect that's not how it's going to turn out. If it turned out we could travel to the past, where would you choose to go to? Oh, that's a, a, always a fun thought experiment. Um, you know, I think I'd, I think I'd want to go as far back as I possibly could, because the deep mysteries have to do with mysteries of origin. I'd really like to understand the origin of life. Where did it first emerge, and what were its initial properties? There's a lot of speculation, but of course, since no one can travel to the past as yet, there's no ability for us to check on these ideas. 
So I think that would probably be the big draw for me, to go as far back as possible. You obviously want to go to a realm that still supports you know, our form of life, but uh, it would be pretty spectacular to witness the emergence of the things that we hold dear, you know, life and consciousness. And if you don't mind, I'll join you on that little trip. We'll be like Mr. Absolutely. Peabody Have and Sherman. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm dating myself there because there, a lot of people may not know who Mr. Peabody and Sherman are. <laughs> Absolutely. My kids used to uh, watch watch those, you know, and uh, I remember it was uh, Peabody and Sherman across the, the second dimension or something was one where they actually did a kind of uh, a, a weird quantum mechanical time travel, as I recall. Yes. One last thing. In 2016, it was discovered that there are something called gravitational waves in space. And I want to ask you about gravitational waves. Are those like ripples through Mm -hmm. time? They are. They're they're ripples actually in space and time, or the language that we typically use is ripples in the fabric of space-time itself. Um, So, you know, if you have an object that's moving around, you can think of it as if it's a child jumping around on a trampoline, and that child will cause ripples to go along the surface of the trampoline, and rapidly moving astrophysical objects like neutron stars or black holes, they can similarly cause ripples to travel along the fabric of space. And those ripples then travel through time as they disperse across space. And what happened in the detection that you're referring to is that two black holes collided very far away and a long time ago, and the wave in the fabric of space that that collision created took a long time to reach planet Earth, over a billion years, but when it finally reached us, we had two detectors that were standing at the ready, and that wave in the fabric of space caused those two detectors to twitch, and the nature of the twitch allowed us to confirm the prediction of Einstein that these ripples in the fabric of space-time are real, these gravitational waves are real. When we're speaking of gravitational waves, are these waves that uh, particles can bounce up and down on like a surfboard can ride? But, but the notion of up and down is a slightly strange one when you're talking about ripples in the fabric of space itself because space embraces up and down and left and right and back and forth. So what actually happens for a macroscopic body, imagine it is the Earth, as the gravitational wave rolls by, the Earth itself stretches and compresses. It stretches and compresses in response to the wave that's rippling by through the fabric of space. Well, Professor Green, I've definitely appreciated this conversation with you. Before we go, I I do know that you're having a lot of discussions about your book. You're doing, uh, are you doing conferences? Well, I'm doing um, a book tour. Actually, I'm right now in Boston. I just did a talk at Harvard yesterday, and I'm heading down to uh, Charlottesville, Virginia tomorrow, and I'll be around the country. So if folks want to look up and see where I am, they can find that information on my Twitter feed or Facebook page, and come on out, and we can talk about some pretty heady ideas. And there, ladies and gentlemen, was Professor Brian Green, and his book is Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. And if you're interested, again, if you are interested in reading this book, you can go to mysteriousmatters.com slash until, and uh, you can also go to mysteriousmatters.com slash Brian Green. But until the next time we come together, 
I bid you all a kind farewell.